0: Break the break through. Break the break through break the break break breakthrough, breakthrough. break through break through. Break, 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 you are now listening to breakthrough news. It's 5 p.m. You're listening to Breakthrough News. And this the punch out we're following the news all day so you don't have to giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be and yes we are back here on the punch out very happy to be back with you here today and we've got plenty for you here on the show as we always do today we want to talk about how wall street runs the fed and how the Fed runs the economy. The Federal Reserve. We've all heard about it. Most of us know it has a lot of power. But beyond that, what do we really know about the Fed? It's an important question because right now the Federal Reserve seems to be on track to increase interest rates to a level that could cause a recession. In other words, they've got the power to determine whether millions of people work or not, and whether their wages and hours will be cut or not. So it seems important to know what this institution really is, what does it do, how did it come about, and what does this all say about the United States? The easiest way to understand the Federal Reserve, or the Fed for short, is that it is the institutional representation of the phrase, too big to fail. It's essentially a public-private partnership that recognizes one basic fact, that capitalism, intrinsically, causes crises. That is, it has boom-bust cycles. And that, rather than address this root cause, the Fed will be there, in theory, to help try to maximize the boom and minimize the bust. However, what that means is filtered through an important lens. And that is the lens of the biggest banks and the biggest corporations in the U.S. who, despite a fig leaf of public participation, control the Federal Reserve. So in a nutshell, the Fed is basically how Wall Street runs the casino-style capitalist roller coaster we've all gotten used to with only a minimum of oversight while using our hypothetical tax dollars to back it all up. So let's start with what the Fed does. The Federal Reserve technically has three objectives set for it by Congress, maximizing employment, stabilizing prices, and moderating long-term interest rates. Over the years, all sorts of other things have been added, including a range of bank regulations they oversee. They're also supposed to oversee the maintenance of the quote-unquote stability of the economy, and they also provide certain financial services for banks. The basic core of what the Federal Reserve does, though, is manage quote-unquote monetary policy and act as the quote lender of last resort to financial institutions. On a day-to-day basis, most of what the Fed does is manipulate these monetary policy tools, What they're doing is essentially regulating the flow of credit in the economy. At certain points, they make credit easier to get to stimulate lending and economic growth. And at other times, they make credit harder to get to rein in the economy. There's an old saying about the Fed that their job is to take the punch bowl away just before the party gets started. That is because the Fed operates on the very factual basis that the economy is bound not only to go up and down, but that the very success of capitalist production sows the seeds of its own demise, so that the bitter fruit of an economic boom is that it guarantees a crisis. So the Fed hopes to try to head that crisis off at the pass by making the crisis happen a bit before it would, quote unquote, naturally, hopefully making the decline more manageable, even if it is still painful for the working class in particular, and then to hit the gas a bit, and help the economy get going again after the House of Cards has fallen. The main tool the Federal Reserve uses for these moves are what are known as, quote, open market operations governed by the Federal Reserve Open Markets Committee, the main day-to-day body managing the economy. If the Fed wants to make it easier to get credit, they put money into the system. If they want to make it harder, they take money out. The way they do this is through the sale and purchase of U.S. Treasury bills or T-bills. When they want to put more money into the system and make it easy to get credit, they hold an auction and they sell treasury bills. A number of large financial institutions are, quote unquote, primary dealers of the Fed, which means they handle their transactions. And as a stipulation for being cut in on this lucrative business. They must buy the treasury bills offered at auction. So when the Fed holds the auction, the dealers buy the T-bills, then they got to unload them. The only way to do that is to trade them, like other securities, say mortgages. So bottom line, it increases the amount of money banks have on hand to lend. The reverse is also true. If the Fed wants to take money out of the system, they buy T-bills on the open market. On a daily basis, the Fed conducts a bunch of purchases and sale agreements in order to shape the overall rate of interest in the economy. The interest rate, which is essentially the cost of borrowing money that a company or you and I will get from a bank is called the quote-unquote prime rate. How does the prime rate get determined? Well, it works something like this. The Fed's purchase and sale of T-bills influences the rate at which banks loan money to one another, bank to bank, from the reserves they keep in the various Federal Reserve banks. This interest rate is known as the federal funds rate and is the center of gravity around which banks determine, based on how they'd measure risk when lending to each other, how much they are going to lend it to you for. The prime rate is also influenced by the Federal Reserve's quote-unquote discount rate the interest rate that banks have to pay when they borrow from the Fed directly from the so-called discount window. The Fed intentionally sets this rate higher than the federal funds rate to make it less appealing to come to the Fed for money until you exhaust all options in the private sector. So by manipulating the federal funds rate and setting the discount rate, the Fed creates the foundation for what the overall interest rate in the economy is going to be. And again, this is very important to the overall situation in the economy. If credit is too tight, the economy can't grow. And if it's too loose, it will grow out of control. The Fed is thus using its own subjective evaluation of the economic situation to decide whether to grow or contract the economy, which is a tremendous amount of power since it determines more or less who works and thus who eats and who doesn't. The Fed also acts as a lender of last resort. This is basically the too-big-to-fail concept. At the end of the day, the Fed will ride to the rescue of the financial markets when they're in trouble, and it can do that in various ways. The main way it does this is setting up various quote-unquote facilities that set up a method for lending money indirectly and directly in order to prevent a certain sector from collapsing due to risky bets going bad for whatever reason. And you've probably heard of some of them, the primary dealer credit facility, the commercial paper funding facility, and so on and so forth. These facilities can work in many ways in terms of the details, but the basic setup is this. The Federal Reserve decides they will make loans against a certain type of security. So, for instance, commercial paper. And commercial paper is just a loan issued directly by a corporation. So if the Fed decides it wants to buy commercial paper to prop up that market, then it sets up the facility and starts buying up commercial paper on whatever terms it considers appropriate. So the facilities are created when the Fed decides things aren't going well in a certain area of the financial markets. Since these transactions are what grease the wheels of the whole economy, the Fed is basically just looking for where bad bets might bring down the whole economy or a big chunk of it. And they inject a bunch of money into that area of the credit world to try to prevent that from happening, to try to keep the dominoes from falling. So again, tremendous power here. The Fed decides who is too big to fail and when, what losses the system can absorb and which ones it can't. So it can collapse giant banks and the associated corporations it's lended to or save them. In other words, they can go a long way towards picking quote unquote winners and losers in the economy based on their own evaluation of who needs to be saved and how. The Fed also holds tremendous power in certain regulations it can set, like how much capital banks have to keep in reserve and so on and so forth, which determines how the big banks do or do not act in a variety of situations. So you can see the Fed really is embedded right at the heart of the economy, and it has the most day-to-day impact on how the economy is moving. While this is based on facts, it's also based on their own conjecture. For instance, they insist they have to keep raising interest rates to address inflation. But as we've noted here a number of times in the show, raising taxes on the wealthy would be far more effective, and raising interest rates might actually end up being more of a problem than it is a solution by causing a recession. The Fed, of course, is still moving ahead with raising interest rates, obviously, because they feel that their way is totally fine, whether it induces a recession or not. Now, there's a lot that could be said here about all of this, but most importantly, it speaks to the frame of mind of the people who make up the decision-making bodies in the Federal Reserve, which, as you may remember, as I said at the beginning of this segment, represents the biggest banks and corporations in America. To really understand this before we go to the structure of the Fed itself, we have to consider how we even got the Federal Reserve in the first place, which didn't form until 1913. Before the Federal Reserve, well, at least since the 1880s or so, things ran on somewhat similar but an ad hoc private basis. There was huge industrial growth that created the Robert barons and the giant megacorporations that we've come to consider normal in our day. At that time, in the financial world, the biggest banker of them all, up until the signing of the Federal Reserve Act, in fact, was J.P. Morgan. But on the basis of being the largest banker, he took on the task of determining the winners and losers himself. Morgan would organize the big New York banks to use their reserves or sometimes borrow against those reserves for big European banks to lend out credit to smaller banks around the country to meet increases in demand for lending in an economic upswing. However, and remember, this is natural. As the economy swings up, there are more and more risky bets taken to try to capitalize. And eventually, the big New York banks led by Morgan would say, nope not going to lend to you. The overextended banks would fail, and as you can imagine, the dominoes would fall and the economy would crash. Now, this worked out well oftentimes for Morgan and his friends. They could, of course, protect themselves and then go behind the failing business concerns, pick up the pieces, and add them to their already giant financial and business empires. However, for the working class and small farmers, this was very bad since it meant recurring crashes without any sort of mechanism to regulate them. However, starting with the populist movement, ordinary working people started raising the issues that, in fact, these things could be regulated. And to use a modern phrase, if the banks were too big to fail, they needed to be managed by democratic forces to curb the excessive risk-taking and, to the extent decisions had to be made about capital allocation, or if you prefer winners and losers, the people determining that would not just be the biggest bankers who, of course, never made themselves the losers. In 1907, there was a major economic panic. So bad, even Morgan couldn't save things. The government had to step in with emergency loans, and this changed the whole conversation. Morgan and his New York bankers couldn't handle the whole deal because as corporations got bigger all across the country, so did the regional banks that managed their money. Not only did that make the task bigger, but these new players increasingly resented having an ad hoc committee making decisions that affected the entire banking system all on their own. So organizations of bankers started plotting and planning. They came up with a basic scheme for legislation similar to what the Federal Reserve would end up looking like. The biggest issue in terms of determining what it all would look like was would the government just let private bankers run the whole thing? Well, to make a long story short, a compromise was struck where the regional banks within the Federal Reserve System would be owned and essentially controlled by the commercial banks, which were its shareholders, and they would also play a big role in managing things at the overall national level, but also that the president would appoint a number of people to manage the new central bank alongside them. That, in essence, is the structure the Federal Reserve Act created and which we can turn to now. But the bottom line here is the Federal Reserve came about as an effort of the financial industry to create a system backed by the full faith and credit, quote unquote, of the U.S. government, which could manage the banking system in a way that benefited the bankers as a whole and help them maintain their core role as masters of the economy, but had a little fig leaf of democracy around it because of presidential appointees. So then how is the bank set up and how does it manage things on behalf of Wall Street and the biggest corporations? So, first, every nationally chartered bank must be a member of the Federal Reserve System. Banks with only a state charter can join if they want, but it's not required. Something like 38% of banks are members of the Federal Reserve System, and when you become a member of the Federal Reserve System, you have to keep a certain amount of your reserves in the various Federal Reserve banks. So, it allows the Federal Reserve to be able to mobilize a huge amount of the bank capital that's available in the country for many of the things that we've already described in terms of their operations. Banks belong to one of 12 regional Federal Reserve banks that then pick their own board of directors and a bank president who has to be the CEO of a bank. The president appoints seven members to the top body of the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. Then those seven people and a rotating cast of five of the 12 regional bank presidents sit on the Federal Open Markets Committee that more or less makes all the decisions on what the Fed is going to do. The influence of banks and the ultra elite on the process works in a few ways. First, directly in the fact that the regional Federal Reserve Bank boards are dominated by banks and corporate heads. Three members of each regional board must be bankers. Then there are two other classes, six people total, who are supposed to represent the public. But what you'll notice when you take a look is the so-called public representatives are almost all corporate CEOs with just a handful of labor leaders or heads of major philanthropies thrown in in a handful of these Federal Reserve banks. Ostensibly, this influence is supposed to be outweighed by the governors appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. However, when you look at who serves on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors, you'll note that they come almost exclusively from high-level corporate backgrounds, the high levels of elite financial institutions, or the highest levels of government service in the financial realm, which often means they also spent time in the corporate world and at the highest, most elite levels of academia. This, of course, should come as no surprise especially when you consider 24 of the 28 members of the Senate Finance Committee that has to approve them have the, quote, securities and investment industry in their top five donors. And the presidency is, of course, determined by the biggest donors overall. So you can see there's a sophisticated, multi-layer, elite filtering system at work in the Fed. Wall Street is directly embedded in the process, and the so-called public representatives are primarily made up of people whose entire careers have been spent as part of or in service to the interests of the 1%. And they are, in fact, chosen by politicians whose entire positioning is heavily related to their ability to appease those exact same interests. There's also the fact that the president has very limited grounds to get rid of Fed governors and none to get rid of bank presidents. So once appointed, Fed officials have a huge amount of autonomy. At the end of the day, the Fed can only do what it does because the assumption is that bottom line, if things really go south, the U.S. government won't let the whole system fail. So you've got a club of the richest, most powerful people in the country that controls the economy day to day, backed by your money in the way that they deem fit, which is to structure things in such a way that they facilitate the long-term continuation of the broader capitalist financial structure, booms, busts, and all. This is an important fact to reflect on in a moment where many American institutions are rightfully being questioned for giving small minorities large amounts of power over the broad majority of people. This is absolutely the case with the Fed, a so-called public entity that hands over most of the day-to-day control of the economy to Wall Street. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom.